In this episode, I will be talking about the movies of Wes Anderson. It's a theme show. That's pretty much all we're doing. I'll say a little before and a little after, probably. But mostly it's the movies of Wes Anderson. That's... that's the episode. Spoiler alert, I liked them all well enough that I'm doing an episode about it. So, there you go. I'm your host, Eric Brink, and you're listening to Empty Checking. Hey there, Checkmates, it's your old Uncle Derek coming to you here on what was a surprisingly darkly rainy day here in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, as I'm recording this, you might be able to hear, if you listen real close, some cicadas screaming in the background. I don't know if you can. I can't really hear it through the headphones, but maybe you can. It's uh, it's cicada season here in town. We finally got them, and uh, they've, been, they've been loud. You just kind of... Even if you can't hear them, just know that as a presence in the room during this podcast, right outside the door, the trees are screaming. So, uh, uh, that's, that's going on. I actually kind of like cicadas. I like, uh, I like the sort of weird sound that they make. It, I don't know what it is about it, but there's something about it that I find comforting, and I can't explain that, and everybody thinks I'm nuts when I say it. So, there you go. That's where we are. But there's there are cicadas going outside, or going, I don't know, whatever they're doing outside. Uh, that might be a mating call. I don't know why they make that noise. They just do, and I kind of like it. So just just know that that's, that's happening. I uh, hope everybody out there is doing okay. Thank you so much for the response to episode number 100, except for the person that emailed me to tell me that I was nuts about AEW wrestling and went on this really long rant about it. I, I, it's fine that you like it, man. That's, that's fine. It's only sometimes for me. I watched the CM Punk debut, and it was perfectly done, and it was excellent. Uh, now they've got to book a match, and I'll watch that too, and make my judgment about that match. But, like, it's fine that you like it. I'm not mad at you for liking it. Why are you mad at me for sometimes not loving every moment of it? It's, it's, it's fine, man. It's... It's it's wrestling. It's a scripted fight between guys who are sometimes muscular and sometimes not. And uh, it's like, scale your anger to that level. Uh, anyway, didn't mean to get into wrestling right off the bat, but that was like the one that jumped out to, out to me in the responses that I got to the, hundred and, or the 100th episode. This is the 101st episode. Uh, for the person that I talked about in the 100th episode who wanted to know what I was drinking during the shows more often, tonight I'm drinking a Goose Island IPA, which is a beer that I actually uh, had for the first time during the pandemic, and and one of the few times where I've gone to a restaurant during the pandemic, and actually the last time I went to a restaurant during a pandemic, because I uh, went to one that I thought was going to be safe, and it turned out to be not very safe, and I haven't been back in a restaurant since, and 
I still don't plan on being back in a restaurant for a while during this COVID resurgence that's happening. Um, but uh, Goose Island IPA, I, uh, I'm i not a huge IPA guy. It seems like everybody's doing IPA now. That's the current trend. I miss when the current trend was uh, stouts, because I really like stouts. But uh, I've... I appreciate a good IPA. Uh, I don't appreciate every IPA, but I appreciate a good one, and I think Goose Island is a good one. It at least has the things I look for in an IPA. Goes good with hot food, by which I mean spicy food, like a bowl of chili or something like that. So, of course, with it being, you know, not chilly weather, I'm drinking it in 98-degree temperatures here in St. Louis. Whatever. Nothing makes sense. But uh, I'm, I'm drinking that beer and enjoying it. That's for, I believe it was Emily who asked that in the last episode. Uh, there's there's your there's your uh, drinking update. Uh, that's what I'm having tonight. With the show in mind, I actually wasn't going to have a beer tonight, and then I sat down to do the show and thought, nah, I should, I should have a beer just for the person that requested that I, I tell them about it. So that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. Uh, the rest of my week this past week has been kind of, kind of different, because I've been doing stuff around the house that's been making my back hurt a lot. I, uh, uh, ran into a sale on some, on some, uh, curtains, so I hung curtains in my front room, which I've been meaning to do for years, and I finally have, and I'm happy with them. Um, and also I started cleaning out a room in my house that is sort of the room where stuff just kind of gets stuck when I'm done with it. And uh, that I'm, I, I know I'm not going to touch this thing again for a while, so it's going in that room. And uh, uh, that room has been overflowing. Like, if anyone wanted to make a case of me being a hoarder, all they would have to do is walk into that room and that room alone. Uh, and it's not in any way hoarding, it's just, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm putting it in that room. That's uh, <laughs> That's what that room has functioned as for... 10 years, probably? Maybe longer? Don't know. Haven't done the math on it. Haven't thought it through. But that's that's sort of what that room has been. And I just kind of got a wild hair that, like, you know, that's, that's a dumb way to use a room, and I need more space for some things, so I'm going to clean that room out. So I started clean that, cleaning that out, and that hurt my back a lot and made me sweaty. And, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I, I'll tell you, just for that room alone, I could really use, like, a dumpster in my driveway. I don't know what it costs to make that happen. I know that you can, but, like, just, like, put a dumpster out in front of my house for a week and uh, my life would change, I feel. <laughs> so, uh, investigating that, maybe. Uh, probably not. Probably I'll just start taking things out of there one thing at a time for several weeks. Um... <clears throat> What else is going on? Uh, been eating well, been eating too much, put on a little bit of weight, actually, that I need to take off here in the next week. So in the next week, I'll be eating salads and baked potatoes with nothing on them and stuff like that. But I, uh, I discovered my grocery store sells bison meat, and I like bison meat, and I kind of went nuts and bought a bunch of bison meat, which is way too expensive, and I shouldn't have done it. But uh, boy, it's been a good time. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what's going on with me. Other than that, I've been listening to a lot of Neil Young and stuff like that, and uh, a lot of music that you find on the soundtrack of uh, Wes Anderson movies, which is applicable to this episode, since I'll be talking about Wes Anderson movies throughout it. Uh, that's the stuff I've been listening to, a lot of uh, British rock mixed with Neil Young. So that's that's kind of the soundtrack of my last week or so. Other than that, it's just kind of business as usual. I hope that you're going through business as usual as well. 
Uh, I am looking forward to digging into this episode and talking about Wes Anderson movies because I'm I'm new to his stuff, but I've seen all of it, and I have many thoughts that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. I kind of wish I had someone else on the show that like knows his stuff way better than I do who could fill in some of the gaps that I'm not going to be covering. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing this one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for me, if nobody else. We'll, we'll find out if anybody else likes it or not. But before we get into that, there are some websites that I should promote to you. Uh, if you like the show, the companion blog that you should really check out that has photos and other information on it is over at emptychecking.blogspot.com. The show itself is hosted at emptychecking.podbean.com. If you want to know more about me and particularly my music career, you can go over to derekbrink.com and click on a bunch of stuff there, and there's actually going to be more stuff added to it. We are on every podcast app that you can think of, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so check us out there if you haven't done that already, if you're not doing that right now, which you probably are. Uh, you can email the show with questions and comments and things, which a lot of people do, surprisingly, over at uh, db, those are my initials, db at derekbrink.com, and maybe I'll reply to you there, or maybe even read your stuff on the show if I uh, feel like it'd make a good segment. So, uh, 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 oh, also the music that you hear throughout the show is my music, and it's all stuff that I wrote, and I would love for you to love it, and you can have it for absolutely free if you go over to derekbrink.bandcamp.com. Just put in zero as your purchase price, and you can take it. I don't collect your email address. I won't even know that you took it. I would just love it if you loved it. That's uh, all the stuff I'm supposed to say. Uh, FYI about the Bandcamp page, I put out two new albums in the last year, and uh, I, I am very proud of them and would like it if you listened to them. And uh, let's play some music from one of them right now and then get into the bulk of the show. Okay, yeah, so I just got into Wes Anderson. I just became a fan of his movies. I don't know what took me so long, other than I just didn't know those movies were for me. Uh, I guess he started putting stuff out, what, very end of the 90s and start of the Zero Zeros? Uh, and, you know, I was in my late teens, early 20s then. I, I didn't know what movies were for me. I, that just kind of happens. I was into the Lord of the Rings movies, and these weren't like that. You know, I knew that much when I would see a commercial for Rushmore or Tannenbaums or whatever. But uh, I just didn't know his movies were for me, and it took me a while to figure that out. Really what got me into Wes Anderson was that I have had an interest in the movie The Grand Budapest Hotel for quite some time, and that ended up being my gateway movie into his whole deal, because uh, I remembered that movie being very much talked about when it came out, and the year that it came out, my dad actually gifted my brother a copy uh, just out of the blue, like my brother didn't ask for it, but dad had seen the movie and liked it and thought Dave would like it and gave him a copy, I believe for his birthday that year, which, you know, I... 
it just stuck in my head that that's one of those movies Dad likes, and I should probably see it at some point. And I just didn't and didn't and didn't for whatever reason, probably because no one was particularly asking me to, and I didn't have a copy, so I just hadn't. And uh, I, I, uh, a friend of mine, a, go- a guy whose opinion I trust, posted that he was super excited about the Grand Budapest Hotel finally coming to the Criterion Collection on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, the Criterion Collection, if you don't know what that is, it's a film group that pre- more or less preserves really important or interesting or weird movies that you might not be familiar with, but that are for some reason cinematically interesting or notable. And uh, stuff like, uh, they're going to put out Citizen Kane in Criterion for the first time here coming up pretty soon. Don't know why it's taken them so long to get around to Kane, but they're going to put out Citizen Kane. And they've done like a couple of Terry Gilliam's movies, uh, like Brazil is in there. Uh, they were the ones that did Grey Gardens. Uh, the, well, they, they didn't do Grey Gardens. I, whatever company that filmed it filmed it. But they, like they do, they have the definitive Blu-ray release of Grey Gardens out there. Um, what else? Movies like that, like the the film version of Rebecca, is is in the Criterion Collection. Uh, a, a couple of uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Stanley Kubrick movies are in there. Being John Malkovich is in there for some reason, The Fisher King, stuff like that. Just movies that are a little bit weird and a little bit different. A whole lot of the Charlie Chaplin collection is in Criterion. So most of Wes Anderson's movies are in the Criterion collection, and Grand Budapest Hotel finally hit Criterion within about the last year. And a friend of mine whose opinion I trust was really excited about it, and that part of my brain went off that went, oh yeah, that's that movie that Dad liked that he gave Dave a copy of, I would like to see that, and it's coming to Criterion, and I like Criterion, and I collect Criterion movies, I'm going to get a copy of that when it hits Criterion. So it hit Criterion, and I got a copy of that, and I immediately didn't watch it for months. And I finally, uh, just whatever reason, it was sitting in the pile of movies that I'm going to get around to watching pile that I've got in my house, and whatever reason, I looked at that pile and thought, today's the day, I'm going to watch Grand Budapest Hotel. And I pulled it out of the pile, and I popped it in, and I watched it, and I really, really liked it. I'm going to talk about it in depth later, but I'm just kind of, this is how it all started. I really liked it, and I decided I wanted to see more Wes Anderson stuff, and I just started devouring all of his movies and got in deep and have really enjoyed the journey. And now I'm talking to you about it, basically. Uh, Some things up front, I didn't know a lot about Wes Anderson going in. For example, this is going to sound absurd to you, I had no idea that the movies he was making were comedies. I'll let that sink in for a second. I had no idea they were comedies, or if I had any any inkling that there was comedy in it, because... Probably if you would ask me to think about it for a minute, I would have realized he works with Bill Murray a lot. It's probably comedies. But uh, if I had any inkling, I, I thought that it wouldn't be near as funny as it is because he writes really, really smart comedies that I really enjoy, and I wouldn't have guessed that at the time that I was seeing commercials for Rushmore or Tenenbaums or Life Aquatic uh, uh, I, I just, I didn't know they were comedies. I don't know why, just no one told me they were comedies. 
I, uh, in fact, uh, Isle of Dogs, his most recent movie that isn't the new one that's coming out in October, The French Dispatch, which I'm interested in seeing, but not in theaters because I'm not there yet. Uh, I, I, Isle of Dogs, I re- remember that being promoted. I remember watching Conan or uh, 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 Colbert or something and seeing like Brian Cranston on it talking about doing voices for Isle of Dogs for the new Wes Anderson movie and just thinking, okay, it's going to be an animated thing. It sounds like it's for kids. I'm not interested. That movie is not for kids. It's a dramatic, gripping comedy that's totally for grown-ups that I enjoyed a lot. I'll talk about that more later, too. I just didn't know what kind of movies he made. And if I had, if you had pressed me, I would have maybe said, well, he makes movies for a certain type of guy, and I don't know that I'm that type of guy. Turns out I'm exactly that type of guy, but I had misjudged him based on the fact that I knew his movies had the Wilson brothers in it, Luke and Owen, and I uh, have misjudged their careers, or at least Owen Wilson's careers. I don't know that career, singular. I don't know that much about Luke, but I, I had the wrong image of Owen in my head because of the memes about him, and because for some reason in my brain when someone says Owen Wilson... Uh, I think of Matthew McConaughey, and that's a different guy. Um, but yeah, I just I had the wrong impression of the Wilson brothers. I uh, knew I liked Jason Schwartzman, who's in a lot of the movies, but I I didn't think much about it. Uh, I knew Bill Murray was in the movies, but this is Bill Murray in many cases post uh, Lost in Translation, and I kind of thought, eh. You know, maybe it's it seems like he's doing dramatic stuff now, and I don't know if I like him as much as a dramatic actor. Which, by the way, is a is a poor judgment in and of itself. He's a fantastic dramatic actor. But uh, uh, we'll even talk about that a little later, too, come to think of it. But uh, uh, I, I, I just, I, I misjudged what the movie would be because I knew that the Wilsons were involved, because I knew that Ben Stiller was in Tenenbaums, uh, stuff like that. I just had entirely the wrong impression about about everything about Wes Anderson's universe because I something in my head hears Owen Wilson's name in particular and thinks I'm going to be watching American Pie which he wasn't in and I <laughs> I just dismiss what he is in by default and that is a mistake on my part which I've learned over the past several weeks watching this watching Wes Anderson's movies hey guys it turns out I really like Owen Wilson I, I didn't know that I didn't see that coming I really like Owen Wilson so that's that's good if nothing else I started liking a guy I didn't like before that's always nice you make a new friend like that not that we're friends I just you know, I'll just see a movie he's in now. Still not real big on Matthew McConaughey. And that's not based on anything that Matthew McConaughey particularly has done, other than, you know, the roles that he plays and the memes of him. Anyway, uh, that's uh, that's sort of the background of, of why it took me so long to get into Wes Anderson, I think. But once I got in, I got in deep, and I really fell in love with the look of his movies, because they're all very colorful, but also kind of drab, and kind of like the color is then diffused, like it's an aged color, that I really, really like the look of his stuff. I like the pacing of his stuff. I love how just funny 
his movies are. Really funny, but that doesn't mean that he can't get gripping and dramatic. He certainly does get gripping and dramatic in a way that I really, really enjoy. Uh, I I just fell in love with the stuff, and I really fell in love with his soundtracks. You get songs by the Kinks and the Stones and the Who, and there's uh, uh, a lot of Bowie, especially in Life Aquatic. Uh, and just really, Velvet Underground shows up. It seems like Wes Anderson and I share a playlist to the point that at one point in Life Aquatic, he uses the song 30th Century Man, which I know as a song by the Jigsaw scene, and I didn't know anybody other than me knew that song. So if, if I were to meet Wes Anderson, which will never happen, but if I were, I wouldn't even want to talk to him about his movies. I would want to ask him what's on his playlist right now and just talk to him about music for like an hour. Uh, Because he's got apparently incredible musical taste or at least knows how to use really good songs. And I appreciate that about him. It just turned out that once I started exposing myself to Wes Anderson's uh, universe... Wes Anderson-verse? Nah, no, there's nothing there. Once I started diving into his movies, it turned out that there was a lot I liked, and I really wanted to dive deeper into it and like more of it. So I ended up watching everything, and we're gonna barrel through nine movies today, hopefully in less time than it, than it takes to watch one of those movies, but we're already hitting about 20 minutes here on the old clock, so we'll see what happens. But we're gonna, we're gonna just kind of go through them all, uh, in the order that they were released. I thought about doing it a couple of different ways. I thought about release order. I also thought about doing it in the order that I watched the movies, but I kind of thought that would be a little bit weird because there are some comments that I want to make where it feels more organic to do it in release order. Uh, for, for those who may be curious, the order in which I watched the movies was I started with Grand Budapest Hotel, then did Rushmore, then Royal Tenenbaums, then The Darjeeling Limited, then Moonrise Kingdom, then Fantastic Mr. Fox, then Isle of Dogs, then Bottle Rocket, and I ended with The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Uh, that's how I watched the movies. That is not the order I will be reviewing them in here. I will be doing, I'll be talking about them in chronological order as far as when they were released. And uh, buckle in for that, because that's going to take a little bit of time, and we're going to start it Right about now, as I reach over to my pile of Blu-rays that's sitting next to me, that's all of his movies, and I pull the top one off the pile, and I just start talking about it, and the top one is his very first movie, and it is called Bottle Rocket. And I will be completely honest with you, if I had watched the movies in chronological order and the first movie I saw was Bottle Rocket, I would not have seen another movie, because it wasn't anything special. It's not bad, but it's not good. If I were to give it a letter grade, I would give it a C-, which I'm realizing now that I've said it has locked me into giving letter grades to all of these movies throughout the rest of the podcast. Well, get ready for that. We're going to do letter grades, I guess. Bottle Rocket is a C-. It's uh, the story, essentially, of three friends who become criminals because of reasons, and it doesn't go very well for them. Uh, it's got a love story that just sucks. Uh, main theme is friendship, I guess. James Caan shows up and is weird and crazy in it. And actually that I liked. I want to see a whole movie of James Caan just being weird. 
uh, I, I, I want to see, like, that character's entire life story, or at least the story of his life around the time of Bottle Rocket. That that would be a movie I would enjoy. But uh, Bottle Rocket, it starts off with uh, Luke Wilson's character in a uh, treatment program for mental illness. It's not entirely clear which one, but he's in a treatment program, and he's checking out of it, but uh, Owen Wilson, who is not playing his brother, incidentally, just playing his friend, is waiting outside of the facility, thinking that Luke Wilson is breaking out of it, rather than just getting out and, and like, leaving of his own volition. Uh, He thinks he's breaking out, so he's, like, there with a getaway car and whatnot. And then they go into a life of crime and steal a meager amount of money and hole up in a hotel for a little while where Luke Wilson fell uh, fell in love with the uh, chambermaid, Luke Wilson's story in this is essentially Neil Young's Man Needs a Maid. Uh, and, uh, like, literally, that's what it is. And she doesn't speak English, and he doesn't speak Spanish, so there's some misunderstanding between them that isn't very funny. And, uh, then they... The the band of friends falls apart and comes back together and commits an even bigger crime that goes even worse, and that's sort of the end of the movie. Uh, wasn't great, Wes Anderson hadn't found his his voice yet. There are elements of it there. It's really something that you watch just to see where he started. Um, I'm going to recommend you not start with Bottle Rocket. I'm going to recommend you start with any of the ones you've heard of before Bottle Rocket, because it was just kind of... Again, if I had started with that movie, I wouldn't have moved on to another movie, and it would have gone, I don't know what everybody loves about Wes Anderson so much. He makes... Movies where Owen Wilson bosses around Luke Wilson. Like, that would have been my entire thought process on him if I had only seen Bottle Rocket. I'll tell you this, I did listen to the commentary, and that uh, that sort of helps. Because it's Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson both not quite saying it, but coming very close to saying, Look, we we thought we were making a good movie, but we didn't, and we know that, and it's it's fine. We've done other stuff since that you like. Uh, this was this was our first movie. Sorry, it, it just come on, you know, be cool. That that, that kind of seemed like what the commentary was, and that seems about right. Uh, the first movie was kind of eh, but he found his voice pretty immediately thereafter because he started off with a C minus, and he moved into what is a very solid B of a movie for sure. Maybe higher than a B, maybe a B plus, maybe an A minus. Let's say B for now. Let's 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 stick with with B for the movie Rushmore, which uh, I grabbed that case and I've added it to the stack in front of me as I was talking to you there. That's what that long pregnant pause was for no reason in the middle of a sentence. Uh, Rushmore is a movie that I had actually heard of. I hadn't heard of Bottle Rocket until I started Googling him after watching Grand Budapest Hotel. But Rushmore I had heard of. I remember the commercials for it. I remember thinking... During the commercials, I remember thinking, that looks like a movie that is probably uh, a drama that is trying to be funny and failing. And uh, that's not what it is. It's a comedy that is trying to be a drama and succeeding at both things. 
Uh, but this is the one that, if you remember the commercials from that time, and what year did this come out? This came out in 1998. I was 18 years old, graduating from high school. Uh, this, uh, when this movie came out, the commercials featured the scene that, uh, for some reason, they think is the biggest laugh in the movie, which is uh, them sitting around a dinner table and the Jason Schwartzman character is talking to the Luke Wilson character, and Luke Wilson is in OR scrubs, and he says that he's wearing, you know, these are OR scrubs. And Jason Schwartzman says, oh, are they? And Bill Murray laughs. And that's not funny. Uh, I don't think it was funny at the time. I remember at the time going, that's not funny, and I don't want to see that movie. So uh, I think that's an explanation for my entire relationship with Wes Anderson movies, is I think of that scene when I think of Rushmore, and it didn't make me laugh at the time, and it doesn't make me laugh now, because it's not a very good joke, and that's just what I thought his movies were like. Uh, Unfortunately, his movies are, well, I guess maybe fortunately, his movies are much, much better than that, and they just put all their money on the bad joke in the promos, uh, which I guess worked because people saw it and people liked it, but whatever. That was my initial experience with the movie. The movie itself is about a kid. Uh, By the way, we are 28 minutes into this show. Spoiler alert for every Wes Anderson movie. I'm going to spoil every one. Uh, Rushmore... You probably know that if you've listened to the show before. I don't care about spoilers. I don't care if I'm spoiled on stuff, so I certainly don't care if I spoil it for you. I do this show assuming that you've seen the material or that you don't care if you learn about it in a way that will spoil it for you. Rushmore is the story of Jason Schwartzman's character, which might be named Max? That seems familiar. I watched a lot of movies recently, and there were a lot of names, and I didn't retain all of them, but I I think maybe he was Max. Uh, 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 Schwartzman's character is a teenager, probably about 17, 18, at a school called Rushmore, and he's kind of a mover and a shaker there, but is academically not so gifted. And uh, he falls in love with a teacher there, a young teacher, a young lady teacher there, and befriends Bill Murray, who is an alum of the school, and they become friends, and he kind of becomes Bill Murray's more or less apprentice, I'm going to say, but Bill Murray also falls in love with that teacher, and a bunch of other stuff happens. Uh, It's a story of young love and kind of pointless love, and there's prep school is thrown in there. There's a real theme of real intelligence versus book smarts. And, and the sort of balance and the, the divide there. And there's a little bit of goodwill hunting. There's a little bit of dead poet society. Uh, uh, that's, it's, it, but it's way funnier than either of those. Um, and there's conflict between Schwartzman's character and, and Murray's character because they're both in love with the same woman and it's working out for Bill Murray because he's more age-appropriate and it's obviously not working working out for the kid who's a student at the school where the teacher teaches because why would it? But uh, the kid is also a gifted playwright and is writing great plays that his school is putting on. And so there's there's a lot going on. It's really funny and really charming, and uh, you get to you 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 get to hear Olivia Williams say "fuck" in it, 
which uh, I enjoyed. Olivia Williams plays the lady teacher, the love interest. Uh, uh, she's she's really good in it, too. Uh, mentioned Schwartzman and, and Murray and Luke Wilson. Olivia Williams, also in it, and uh, she did great. I, I liked her. I am largely unfamiliar with her from other projects, but I, I appreciated her in this one. Uh, and I liked liked hearing her cuss. She did well with it because it was one of those scenes where the profanity in it was sort of the point of the scene, and she she nailed it. She she got it just right. That's hard to do. You have no idea how hard that is to do until you've tried to do it. Uh, my first experiences with that were putting the f word into songs and and trying to find the right way to say it so it didn't seem like it was a big deal, but. She knocked it out of the park with that. Everybody in the cast knocked it out of the park. Really enjoyed the movie. Uh, I gave it a solid B rating. It might be higher than that, but we're uh, we're going with B because we went with C minus for Bottle Rocket. I liked Rushmore a lot more than Bottle Rocket, and we're giving it a B because I didn't like it as much as the next movie. Even though I liked it, I liked the next movie even better, and the next movie is The Royal Tenenbaums. Is it pronounced Tenenbaum or Tannenbaum? I think either is appropriate. It's a German word for Christmas tree. O Tannenbaum? Except it's uh, spelled a little different. The German word has two N's at the front. T-E-N-N-E-N-B-A-U-M. Only one N at the front of the of the movie title. Anyway, The Royal Christmas Trees uh, is a good movie. I, I liked it a lot. I'm going to give it a B+. Plus little bit more than Rushmore uh, with the scale getting closer to a you'll you'll uh, I think you'll enjoy what is the first a grade in my stack of movies here Royal Tannenbaums is a story about uh, Gene Hackman who it's not actually about Gene Hackman but Gene Hackman's in it uh, he plays the a father who is looking back on his life with his kids and wife or ex-wife and is finding a lot of fault and is trying to make it better and is trying to make it better in the worst way that he possibly can by lying about having a a fatal disease and just trying to get everybody to love him that way. Uh, the, the guy's rich. He's got a huge family who are all definitely one percenters. And uh, it's him just kind of realizing that, you know, everything wasn't enough. I should have been a better dad and I want a better relationship with everybody and I don't know how to get it. So I'm going to fuck it up worse trying to get it. That's, that's sort of what the movie is. I really enjoyed it. I I got a lot of laughs out of it. It's very funny, but it's got some really poignant and really moving moments to it as well. There's a, a really good balance between drama and comedy in it. It's a family movie with the with the the tension that goes along with family. It's uh, a movie about dishonesty. It's a movie about regret and repentance, and uh, it's got a love plot between uh, Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow. Who I'm not the world's biggest Gwyneth Paltrow fan, but I liked her in this. Uh, they play actually brother and sister. Except it's okay that they're in love because she's adopted. I, I, I don't know if that's actually okay, but that's sort of what, what the movie tells you, so you you kind of go with it. That's, that's your call. 
but it's uh, that that does add a layer to the discussion. Uh, maybe not discussion, but to the examination in the movie of what family really is and what family really means. Uh, I also had my doubts I was going to like this movie because Ben Stiller's in it, and I'm just not a Ben Stiller guy. That's nothing personal against Ben Stiller. In the 90s, when he was first starting to hit and was doing the Ben Stiller show and stuff like that, I thought, oh, this guy's a fresh, unique voice in comedy, and he's going to change things forever. And it's your call whether or not he did. Uh, I will say that I have not often been a fan of the type of movie he chooses to do. Which isn't, uh, he's still funny. He's still, I'm sure, a great guy. I, I don't have anything personally against Ben Stiller. I'm just not a big fan, is all I'm saying. People are going to be mad at that, but it's just, I, I'm just not a huge Ben Stiller fan. But I liked him in this. I enjoyed him in this. Um, I think this is actually where he met Owen Wilson, and they went on to do stuff like Zoolander together. So that, that, that's something. Um... Anyway, I, I liked the movie a lot. I wasn't expecting to like it that much, just based on casting and based on knowing going into it that behind the scenes, Gene Hackman really hated being there <laughs> and uh, made things unpleasant for cast and crew and director alike and made threats of people and was in a bad mood the whole time and just clearly hated being there to the point that the rumor is, and I don't know if this is true, I think Bill Murray's actually denied it, but the rumor is that during shooting, Bill Murray just started showing up on days where he wasn't needed just to sort of serve as a buffer between Hackman and other people. And rumor has it that he even, like, wore a cowboy hat when he did so, just to, like, look more like a sheriff. And if that's true... That is the coolest thing I've ever heard Bill Murray doing, heard about Bill Murray doing, I guess, would be a better sentence. That is a really cool move and a really nice move on his part to just kind of say, hey, we're roughly on the same level as celebrity, and if you step out of line, I'm going to put you in line. That would have been the right thing to do. On the other hand, if you're Gene Hackman, and you're at that point in Gene Hackman's career, and some guy who is probably in his 20s, what was, what was this movie? 2001? Yeah. Uh, Wes Anderson, I don't think, is that much older than I am, and I was 21 in 2001. If, uh, well, he's got to be a little bit older than I am. Doesn't matter. Look, if a guy, if, if you're Gene Hackman and you see what is essentially a very white bread kid writing a role for Gene Hackman and only Gene Hackman can play that role and you're Gene Hackman, you're going to come in with a little bit of a uh, big head about it. And when the experience is something different than what you want out of it, you're going to get grumpy. So there are reasons that Gene Hackman went all well, went all Gene Hackman on the experience, but I, I sort of, like, I really want to hear his side of that. I, I want to hear, I want to, I want to read, like, the book of, that Gene Hackman writes about specifically that. I want to be, like, a full War and Peace level thickness of book of Gene Hackman just hating his time there. That, uh, uh, is probably his own fault, because I've, Mostly only heard people say great things about the environment that Wes Anderson creates, except Gene Hackman really hated being there. Apparently James Caan didn't love being on Bottle Rocket and did that thing of, uh, well, I don't know if my character would do that or wear that or whatever. Maybe it's just a thing of actors of that generation. I don't know. Maybe that's... 
maybe that's why Bill Murray keeps getting parts because he's of like not quite that generation, but like immediately after. And Wes Anderson met him, and it went well, and he realized, oh, that's the cutoff age is is Bill Murray. So I'm going to work with Bill Murray all the time, and God bless him for doing so because everybody loves Bill Murray. Uh, but yeah, apparently Hackman just really hated being there to the point that uh, Bill Murray is rumored to have served as an intermediary. And just knowing that in the background of it, too, watching it the whole time, I'm just kind of going, wow, Hackman was really good in that scene. I wonder if that's one of the days where he yelled at Wes Anderson. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, it's just a really interesting movie with an enormous cast. I didn't even mention Angelica Huston. I didn't even mention that, uh, uh, um, oh, God, what's his name from Lethal Weapon? Not Mel Gibson, the one that doesn't suck. Uh, Danny Glover. Uh, I, I for, for a second forgot Danny Glover's name, but I remembered it because I'm not a racist. Danny Glover shows up in the movie as well. Uh, Luke Wilson's there again. Uh, uh, I mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow already. I think I hit most of the big names. I hope I'm not forgetting anybody major. It feels like I might be, but it, it, it was a really interesting cast. It was a really interesting movie. I identified with a lot of it. I thought a lot of it was hilarious. It, uh, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the Royal Tenenbaums. I'm giving it a B plus. It might even edge toward an A minus or so, but I, I'm, I'm sticking with B plus for now. And then we're going to move on to the next movie in the uh, stack of movies. I'm trying to do this as fast as I can because we got to get through nine movies and that is not an easy task and I've got a lot to say about a couple of them so I don't want to be here for two hours. Uh, sorry if it seems like I'm skipping over anything. Royal Tenenbaums, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the next one even more than that though. And the next one is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. And uh, that's the one that I probably saw the most commercials for at the time that it was released when it came out in, wow, 2004. A lot of the movies I'm talking about are around about 20 years old now, and that is terrifying. Uh, I remember a lot of commercials for Life Aquatic at the time and going, that looks kind of interesting, but I uh, there was, again, just something about it that I wasn't quite in based on the commercials, and that was a mistake on my part. Uh, Life Aquatic is sort of a I'm going to say it's 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 almost a reimagining of the life of Jacques Cousteau cuz Bill Murray plays Steve Zizou in it and there's a lot of Jacques Cousteau elements to that character and to the story that's told throughout it if you ever read up on Jacques Cousteau that's actually worth your time Jacques Cousteau was a really interesting guy that you might not realize was as interesting as he was but uh, life aquatic Bill Murray plays Steve Zizou, and it starts out with him. Uh, he is a documentarian who is making movies, but is also doing, you know, dives into the ocean. He's making movies about his dives and, uh, and releasing them. And it starts out with the release of one of his movies where his longtime companion and friend has died, and th the aftermath of that is shown in the movie. The screening does not go very well. People kind of meet it with a, with a response of, eh, like to the point that it's even somewhat questioned whether or not Zizou's friend actually died. Uh, like there's even a little bit of suspicion cast on that. And he was like, what? but what? And you can kind of see the, uh, that, Steve Zizou doesn't know what to do with that information. As he's walking around, he is approached by Owen Wilson's character, who is a guy that says, Hey, my mom told me that you're my dad, and I've 
never tracked you down, but like here you are, and I just, I don't know, I think maybe you should know that, and I don't want anything from you, but you, it, you're probably my dad, and I just thought I'd tell you that. And Steve Zezu goes, yeah, okay, I remember your mom, that's entirely possible. Okay, guess you're my son. And they just kind of start doing dives together and stuff, all the time filming, because he's always filming a new documentary, because he's basically Jacques Cousteau. Uh, it's it's a, an interesting father-son story from that perspective. It gets more interesting when we find out that there's probably no way that Owen Wilson's character could be Steve Zezu's son, because... To quote someone in the film, Steve shoots blanks. We all know what that metaphor means. Uh, so probably not his son. And uh, But throughout the movie, Zizou, or Bill Murray, whatever, makes it clear that uh, he accepts Owen Wilson as a son and, and thinks of him as a son and believes in him as a son. And uh, that's that's just clear throughout the movie. And it's it's sort of an interesting examination of what makes you family and what makes you actually family and what, you know, there, there's, there's an emphasis on in the movie on what it is to be a good person and what the truth is of being a good person and also what role dishonesty and even misunderstanding plays in that. And, both, and all of those aspects are shown in the father-son story between Murray's character and Wilson's character and done really, really well. Uh, there's a strong emphasis in the movie on death. Right at the outset, Steve Zizou's best friend dies. Deeper in the movie, big spoiler alert here, deeper in the movie, Owen Wilson's character dies. So Steve uh, Zizou is losing everybody. And uh, uh, there's so there's an emphasis on death. And there's a real emphasis on the music of David Bowie that just keeps popping up, which, given Bowie's death in subsequent years, adds another layer to that aspect of the story that I didn't know I was going to tap into until I did. I knew this movie was full of Bowie music. That's part of why I saved it for last, because I assumed I would enjoy it. A lot of the Bowie songs are played by a guy on an acoustic guitar singing the lyrics in Portuguese. So you've got to be a pretty big Bowie fan to recognize most of them. Uh, I'll tell you this, I loved that so much that I went out and bought the album of the studio recordings of that guy just sitting and playing a bunch of Bowie songs on acoustic guitar and singing them in Portuguese. I decided I need that, needed that in my life, and now I've got it because it was so well done in the movie, and I've listened to it, and it's beautiful. I'll put a picture of it on the blog over at emptychecking.blogspot.com, along with, like, 25 other pictures, and you can look at that. I don't have it on hand, so I don't remember the gentleman's name, and I apologize for that, but it's if you look up the Life Aquatic Studio Sessions, you'll find the CD or the downloads, whichever you prefer. As you all know, I'm a physical product guy. Uh, I, I, I loved the musical aspect of it, the Bowie stuff. It's probably the most emotional of the movies. At the end of the movie, Bill Murray is confronting the shark that killed his best friend, and he lets the shark live, which was an interesting choice, especially in a Wes Anderson movie, because Wes Anderson has a penchant for killing animals in his movies. Uh, we probably don't need to go, go any deeper into that because it kind of becomes a bummer. But uh, he lets the shark live and just says, I wonder if he remembers me. And Bill Murray plays that scene so wonderfully because he then gets really glassy-eyed and kind of 
kind of like half cries and it's a really beautiful really emotional moment that I was not prepared for because I was not prepared for a teary-eyed Bill Murray in a movie that I was expecting to be a comedy by the time I watched it it was very gripping very moving I was super into it at all points at one point Bill Murray walks around a boat firing a gun at people while Iggy and the Stooges search and destroy plays it's a perfect movie it's wonderful I loved it it's probably tied for first place among my favorite of these movies uh, right alongside Grand Budapest Hotel it's probably a 1A 1B situation as far as which one I like more and that will probably flip-flop over time back and forth I, I really liked both of those movies absolute A plus for Life Aquatic really loved it I've watched it a couple of times since the first time I watched it. I just really, really got into that flick, and uh, I, I, I think maybe his best work. That's uh, certainly debatable. Every movie that any director does, somebody's going to love more than his other movies. Uh, Life Aquatic's right at the top of my list alongside Grand Budapest Hotel. Absolute A-plus on that movie. There's nothing I would change about it. And good God, I haven't even mentioned that Kate Blanchett is in it. And I love Kate Blanchett, as you know, uh, from if you've listened to the show and have heard me talk about Lord of the Rings, I am in love with Kate Blanchett, not in a way that she has to worry about, if this ever gets back to her somehow, which it won't, but not in any way that she has to worry about. When I say I love Kate Blanchett, I mean that I enjoy watching her in things. I think she's pretty and funny and does her uh, plays her, her parts that she plays really well. And that's the end of it. I don't know anything about her personally. I have no intent on meeting her or finding her, uh, but I'm uh, I'm in love with her on the level of, oh, uh, she does movies that I like, and I would like to see her do movies uh, that I like more often. That's that's what I mean by I love Kate Blanchett. But I love Kate Blanchett, and she's in this, and is great in it. She's funny and, 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 and plays drama really well. Uh, Jeff Goldblum shows up and is weird. Uh, this movie has a little bit of everything. Really loved The Life Aquatic. That uh, might be the most I'm going to say about any of these movies. I'm not really sure. Actually, it's probably not. I've got a lot to say about Isle of Dogs. We're not there yet. You know where we are? We're on the Darjeeling Limited. That's where we are. You ready, motherfuckers? You, uh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Uh, you guys ready to talk about... Wow. Uh, let's just let that sit between us for a second. Sorry, checkmates. I think I meant to call you checkmates instead I said motherfuckers. Uh, okay, maybe we'll, maybe we'll, uh, let's take a breath, calm down a little bit. I got excited about the Life Aquatic. Uh, let's talk about the Darjeeling Limited, which I didn't like as much as the Life Aquatic. <laughs> so maybe that'll be a, maybe that'll calm my, uh, calm my energy a little bit here. Let's, uh, let's. Let's, uh, let's talk about Darjeeling Limited. This movie is a movie that, uh, well, frankly, I didn't enjoy that much. It actually seems like, it seems like Wes Anderson did the commentary for Bottle Rocket and then decided, I could make that movie better now, and made the Darjeeling Limited. Because it seems like Bottle Rocket 2, Owen Wilson plays virtually the exact same character in it, just a little bit more tolerably. Um... It's a story about brothers who have been estranged, who are coming back together, getting on a train called the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, two of the brothers, played by Jason Schwartzman and uh, Adrian Brody, to the third brother being Owen Wilson, uh, two of the brothers have no idea that Owen Wilson is secretly 
taking them to find their mother, who did not show up to their father's funeral, to reunite with her and figure out some stuff and start addressing what's wrong in their family. That's essentially what the movie is. It's uh, brothers on a road trip to find their mom and try and get stuff sorted out between themselves and their mom and come to peace with their father's death. So it's a brother story, it's a father-son story, it's a mother-son story, it's an intricacies of family relationships type of story. Uh, There is a tacked-on love story in it with uh, Jason Schwartzman's character and a... uh, Do they call them stewardess? Are they stewardesses on a train? The uh, lady who goes from door to door and asks you if you need stuff. Her. I don't know what you what you call that that role anymore. I don't know if I ever knew what you called it on a train. And I don't know the name of the actress who plays that role. And she is not listed on the Blu-ray case. Although Angelica Huston shows up again, she plays the mom. I hope I'm saying Huston right. I've always said it Huston. It might be Houston. Anyway, uh, Jason Schwartzman falls in love with whoever I just described at one point for some reason. And uh, they're going through, you know, India and whatnot and running into cultural problems and things. And, and like at one point a kid dies and they don't they're not able to to rescue him because he was drowning and stuff and that gets sad and just kind of comes out of nowhere it wasn't great like i said it was kind of bottle rocket take two it worked better than bottle rocket but if i gave bottle rocket a c plus frankly darjeeling limited is going to be a c just in that it felt more like a uh, wes anderson movie but i didn't love it I, I I didn't it didn't draw me in in the same way that his previous few uh, that I talked about just now ha- had done. It was just kind of there, just kind of fine. I don't feel a need to watch it again. I probably at some point will, and who knows when I do? Maybe I'll go. Oh, I was crazy. That's actually a really good movie. Um, I have my doubts about that, but maybe. Uh, it was about a C. It was watchable. If somebody. If I knew somebody who hadn't seen it and they wanted to see it, I'd watch it with them, but I don't know that I'd be that into it. Because it's just kind of Bottle Rockets 2. Darjeeling Limited. Takes place on a train for a lot of it. I think I said that, didn't I? Doesn't matter. Uh, That's where I landed on Darjeeling Limited. About a C. It It was very much just the same thing as Bottle Rocket, but on a train. And nobody was outright committing crimes. They were kind of, I guess, at, at times, but not, not like, not with the intent of hurting or robbing anybody, like is in Bottle Rocket. I don't know. Just kind of fell flat with me, but that's okay because I like most of the rest of his filmography. So we're gonna move on to a different one, a very different one, actually, that I liked quite a bit, and we're gonna talk about Fantastic Mr. Fox. And Fantastic Mr. Fox is an animated story, a stop-motion animated story, in fact, which is a, a kind of archaic way of doing animation, which it's it's very interesting and very Wes Anderson that he chose to do it that way. It kind of kind of makes it feel different from all the other animated stuff that you're seeing these days. It's a story based on a uh, story by Roald Dahl, 
which once I heard that, I thought, well, this could go any way in the world. Roald Dahl did some really interesting work. If you have any familiarity with his stuff, uh, you know what I mean. But it's based on a Roald Dahl story, and it's a story uh, of a fox, a fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, who's voiced by George Clooney, who is basically trying to have a better life with his family, but he's a fox, so he's used to stealing stuff from farmers. So he's trying to build an honest life, but in his head he, he has one more big score that he kind of wants to wants to commit, and he arranges to commit it and gets his whole family in on it, and even his wife who disapproves of it by the end is kind of like, yeah, all right, I guess we're I guess we're criminals now. Uh, which is, huh, also kind of the plot of Bottle Rocket. Weird. Anyway, uh, I, I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox a lot. It's a family story. It's a crime story. It's a, it's a fox stealing to try to have a better life. There's a father-son dynamic in there. It's very cute. And George Clooney, who I don't always love, is great in it. He does great voice work in it. And uh, uh, I, 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 I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I was surprised by how into Fantastic Mr. Fox I got. It was a really fun, really, really adorable movie that uh, uh, was just really fulfilling. You could probably watch it with a kid who is ready to not watch Disney stuff anymore, but still wants to have animal characters around, you know? It's probably got a little bit more of an adult edge than than even what I said there, but it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it appeal to a kid, probably. And by kid, I mean, like, sort of the tween, early teen area, probably. Like the, like the early teen kids would think they're getting away with something by watching a Wes Anderson movie, but the, the, the tweens would think that it was aimed at them, maybe. I, I, I liked it. It was very cute. At one point, I fell in love with one of the characters, which, because I, grew up in a time and place where the Disney Robin Hood uh, animated feature was shown all the time, the one with the foxes. This was not the first time that I had fallen in love with an anthropomorphic uh, fox. I almost said shark. Never fall in love with an anthropomorphic shark. Sharks are terrifying. But not not my first uh, fox-based romance. Uh, and romance is... is pushing it a little hard. Uh, but I, I, you, you really do start to fall in love with the characters and really start to pull for the characters in a way that I didn't think I would. I thought, ah, this is going to be an animated thing. It's him doing something different. He's just trying something out and maybe doing something a little bit more family-friendly. I'm not going to be that into, into this. But it turned out I was super into it. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I loved, like, once I found out it was a Roald Dahl story, I was kind of all in on just like, eh, this is going to be weird if nothing else and uh, I really enjoyed it. I'd give it a B plus, maybe even an A minus. I was really surprised by how much I liked it, and I liked it a whole lot. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox was a really good time. I think that's all I have to say about it. We're gonna just blaze through a couple of these because I don't have a ton to say about all of it, but I have a ton to say about Isle of Dogs. So uh, uh, I, th I think we're done with uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox for now. Uh, let's move on to the next one, chronologically, Moonrise Kingdom, which came out in 2012. Wow, we're getting, we're still 10 years away from the, from the present, but we're getting, we're getting close. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Another one where I found myself, found myself, I combined the word found and find into one nonsense word. It was another one where I found myself 
really surprised by how much I liked it, and partially because, again, because of casting. I should know by now, by this point in the stack of movies, that I can't trust my preconceptions about an actor, especially when it comes to Wes Anderson movies. Because I knew that Bruce Willis was in this movie, and I'm not a Bruce Willis guy. That's not a judgment on Bruce Willis himself. I'm sure he's a perfectly fine person, although that's debatable if you listen to what Kevin Smith has to say about him. But uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not in the demographic for Die Hard, basically, and that's 99% of what Bruce Willis seems to do. And I'm just not a Bruce Willis guy, so I kind of thought, well, he's, he's got pretty high billing in this one. I'm not going to be that into this movie. I don't know why he's billed so highly and so favorably when you look at the sort of cast list for this movie, because he's in it, yeah, but he's just kind of in it. He's not the main focus of it. He's uh, Bob Balaban might be in the movie more than Bruce Willis is, and I bet you have to Google who Bob Balaban is, unless you're me. Uh, Bruce Willis is just kind of in it. He's a pivotal role. He's a very important role. He's not the central role. So that immediately was a point in its favor for somebody who's not a big Bruce Willis fan. Uh, but that said, the story itself, the story itself is a love story, but it's a young love story. It's children running away from home to be together. It's, ch it's, it's a story of childhood wanting to be adulthood, and they're running away so that they can be together forever and, and no adults can stop them from being. That's, that's essentially what the movie is. It's a family story, but it's sort of a found family story because of, uh, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, by the end, Bruce Willis ends up ad adopting the boy that's the, uh, the, in the, in the young couple. Uh, it's, there's a little bit of a wilderness survival aspect to it. There's a little bit of an aspect of looking for home, but the story is these two kids have run away and they've decided they're going to be in love forever. And this is them trying to do that. And all the adults are trying to find them because they're kids and they can't do that. And, uh, that's sort of what the movie is. There are a couple of moments in it where like the kids are noticeably in their underpants that I think could have been filmed differently, like maybe we didn't need that, but at the same time, it was played very sweetly and very innocently, and, uh, but I know that he got some criticism, some criticism for that, and that, yeah, okay, I can see why people got uncomfortable with that, but it's, it doesn't hurt anything, like I said, the way that it was done, it was very sweet and very innocent in its way, and, uh, uh, there is a boob-touching scene, though, that was kind of like, eh, I don't know, I, I probably would have edited that out if it were my thing that I was writing. But that, beyond that, that said, that, that, uh, that considered, I still really enjoyed the story of the movie. Like, I can put up with being a little uncomfortable with one aspect of a movie if I like the story, and I liked the story quite a bit. I would give the movie actually a B plus because I was, uh, you know, if I had gone into it thinking I was going to like it, maybe it'd even be a lower grade than that, but I, I went into it expecting not to like it, and I ended up really liking it. So I'm giving it a B plus. There are a couple of moments in it where you might kind of go, ah, I don't know if you should show kids doing that. You know, you might feel that a little bit. Uh, there's a moment where a uh, dog, who is clearly a puppet, uh, gets killed, and you briefly see a shot of the dog with an arrow in its side. Already dead. It's not, like, writhing or anything. But, like, that's just part of Wes Anderson's penchant for killing small animals. 
that's in there. So a couple of things that might jump out at you as being uncomfortable, but the story itself is so sweet and so fun that those moments are absolutely bearable, and I ended up enjoying Moonrise Kingdom a lot. It gets a B+. Which brings us to the one that started everything, for me. We're caught up to uh, the year 2014 and the movie The Grand Budapest Hotel. I already got into what attracted me to this movie in the first place. You can wind back the episode and find that if you skipped it. But uh, this is uh, has remained my favorite Wes Anderson movie throughout this whole journey. I think just because it was my gateway and I fell in love with it immediately, so I remained in love with it. Um, I'm going to need to watch it again here soon, having also fallen in love with Life Aquatic, just to see if it remains at 1A or if it's now 1B, you know? Um, but I, I, I like it a lot. It's hard to describe what the story is. And going into it, I, I don't know what I thought the story was going to be. I think, I think I was expecting it to be something like Four Rooms. You know, the one with, that, like, Quentin Tarantino and, like, the other couple of directors did that has Tim Roth as the bellman? Uh, I, I, I think I was expecting that movie, but just done in a different style or with a different twist or something like that. And it's nothing like that. It's, uh, it's, it, it is sort of central to a hotel, but it also branches out into a war story and a love story that this time does not feel in any way tacked on. He actually nailed the love story in this movie. Uh, and it's a story of friendship and sacrifice, and and uh, there's a prison escape at one point. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, the main guy in it is the dude that played Voldemort, so that's, that's something, too. In fact, throughout the entire movie, I just mentally uh, turned on a switch in my head to fold it into the Voldemort origin story, and that made it a lot more interesting. Like, after Voldemort got out of Hogwarts, but before he, like, fully became Voldemort and had, like, a castle for all the Death Eaters to hang out in or whatnot, uh, uh, he, maybe he, uh, maybe he was a, a, a guy in a hotel for a while. That'd make you evil, I think. Uh, having to work in public service for that long? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I just, I folded it into the Voldemort story, and that made it a lot of fun and, and, and funny. Uh, and by the way, the movie is incredibly funny. That was the thing that jumped out at me immediately is because like I said, I didn't know Wes Anderson was making comedies. And then I watched Grand Budapest Hotel and, and I just thought, wow, first of all, I love how dingy this movie looks while also still being colorful. And also this is really funny in a way that like a lot of these jokes probably don't get laughs because they're funny in a way that people might be missing. And I just fell in love. Like, that's always my favorite kind of joke. My favorite kind of joke is one that will go over the, the head of the person sitting next to you while you're laughing your ass off. And that's all throughout Wes Anderson's stuff. And that just jumped out at me as one of the really big, uh, one of the one of the, the big appeals of the Grand Budapest Hotel. I really enjoyed it on that level. Uh, boy, I haven't told you a lot of plot here. That's because there's so much going on, it's hard to do. Uh, I, I, I have one qualm with the movie. One question, more than qualm, even, with the movie. The character of Zero is shown as both a young man and as an old man. As a young man, he is played by a guy who, I'm going to butcher this last name, and I apologize, I've never heard his last name said. Uh, he's played as a young man by Tony 
uh, Revolori. R-E-V-O-L-O-R-I. Revolori. That's how I'm going to say it. He's played by Tony Revolori as a young man. And as an old man, he's played by F. Murray Abraham. And those two guys are completely different races and noticeably different races. And I don't know why that is. Uh, (laughs) I don't know why the same guy was uh, played by two guys who are very clearly not the same race. There are some, I guess, some facial structure resemblances between the two guys that I can kind of see, but uh, F. Murray Abraham is a lot wider than Tony Rivoli. Um I don't know what's going on there. It kind of feels like they maybe cast the movie and Tony was acting his ass off and doing a great job, but like they didn't know if they were going to get F. Murray Abraham. And then when F. Murray Abraham's agent got back to him and said that he was in, they went, oh, all right, I I guess we got F. Murray. Let's let's do this. That's awesome. Great. Let's go with it. And they just kind of, like, it already shot stuff with Tony Rivoli, and they couldn't recast either role, so they just went with it. Nope, nobody complained. That seems like maybe what happened. I don't have any complaint about that, because both guys were great. F. Murray Abraham is a fantastic actor. I really love that guy. I'm glad he was in the movie. Like, that was one of the things, one of the first things that appealed to me was the cast. I went, wow, F. Murray Abraham's in this. Holy crap, Jeff Goldblum is in this. Jason Schwartzman has a bit part in this. I just kept sort of popping for all the names that were popping up. And uh, F. Murray Abraham is is great. I loved seeing him. It just seemed like an odd choice that they... (laughs) swapped someone's race by the end of the movie uh or i guess by the beginning of the movie because we start off meeting him as an old man and then go back to when he was a young man and so on and so on and so on um that was the one sort of i don't even want to call it a downfall or a drawback of the movie it was just the one thing that i kind of went huh why is that you know and i haven't had that a lot during wes anderson's movies but i had it there and i don't know what the answer is to that. I don't believe it was addressed in the commentary, which I did listen to, but by the time I was listening to it, I had already watched the movie once, and I was kind of drunk. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it didn't, uh, if they did address it, it didn't land with me. Uh, if anybody knows what happened there, uh, fill me in. I would like to know what happened. Because it's just kind of interesting, and just kind of just kind of curious. I, I don't think it actually hurts the movie, but it is something that I noticed and that I had questions about. But from everything I've said, Grand Budapest Hotel, probably my favorite. If not, it's my very, very close second favorite A-plus of, of a movie since I blocked into this grading thing. Did I say B-plus for Moonrise uh, Kingdom? I don't remember if I did or not. Grand Budapest Hotel is an A-plus. Really, really liked it. It was a great gateway into the Wes Anderson-verse for me. Still not a thing. Wasn't a thing when I said it earlier. Don't know why I tried it again. It was a great gateway into Wes Anderson's whole thing. For me, uh, the Wes Anderthon instead of Marathon. Wes Anderthon. Anderson-thon? Ah, why am I doing this? I, I really liked Grand Budapest Hotel. If you haven't seen any of his movies, it was my starting point, and I think it serves as a very good one. It's an A-plus movie for me, and we have... One more movie to talk about before we start wrapping stuff up. We're making pretty decent time. We're over an hour, but I was afraid we were going to hit two. But I I don't have a full hour to say about this next movie. So I think we're going to be okay. Uh, So let's get into it. Let's get into the last movie. 
Uh, he's got a movie coming out in October that I'm interested in seeing called The French Dispatch, but uh, we're not there yet. So for right now, this is the last movie on the pile of movies. It's the only one that isn't in the Criterion Collection so far, and looking at the stack of D- Blu-rays and DVDs in front of me, that's driving me nuts because it's the wrong shape of box. It's uh, I bought it on DVD because I figured it's going to hit Criterion eventually, because all of his other movies are in Criterion. And uh, so I bought the DVD version because it was a little cheaper than the Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray didn't have any extra stuff that the DVD didn't. But it's driving me nuts that it's not a Criterion Collection DVD uh, or Blu-ray. Criterion, if you somehow hear this, please put Isle of Dogs in your collection very soon. It needs to go on my shelf with its brethren. Uh, But yeah, we're talking about Isle of Dogs now, in case you didn't hear me just say the title. You drifted off for a second. Uh, Isle of Dogs is the last movie that is available right now, and it's the last one we're going to talk about. So let's, let's, uh, let's do, let's do that. Isle of Dogs is a movie that is another one that I was surprised by how much I liked it. I'm just going to say right up front, I gave it an A. It's, uh, it's, it's a very, very good movie. I really, really enjoyed it. The story is basically a boy and his lost dog. But it's, uh, it's bigger than that, because the lost dog is lost because in uh, Japan, although I think it's supposed to be worldwide, it's at least implied that it's worldwide, uh, but it's set in Japan. And uh, actually, one of the interesting things about the movie is uh, all the Japanese dialogue is not translated, uh, except for occasionally it's translated by an actual translator or by a machine. Uh, but there's a lot of Japanese dialogue that is just said in Japanese, and you have to pick up from context clues what they're saying. And that was a really interesting and bold choice, I thought. Uh, uh, probably somebody out there qu- questions it for reasons uh, that I don't understand. I thought it was a very interesting choice. Um, but it's set in Japan, and in at least this story, the Japanese government has discovered that there is a dog flu going around that is infecting all of the dogs and is jumping over to humans. Boy, doesn't this sound like the kind of plot that applies to the world that we live in right now with COVID-19 out there. Uh, So the Japanese government has decided that they're going to take all of the dogs and get them out of the country and put them on their own island that they're calling Dog Island that is actually a trash island. And uh, the young boy in the story who is named Atari, which... Very racially sensitive name there, Wes. Atari? Really? Maybe there are a lot of people named Atari in Japan. I don't know. But in America, when you hear the name Atari, you think of the uh, gaming system. If you're my age, anyway, you do. Anyway, Atari, uh, his dog, who is more or less a service dog, is uh, taken from him and is patient zero, is dog zero of the uh, of the... The, uh, the, 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 uh, exodus to Dog Island. So he's the first dog taken to the island, and he's dumped there in a cage and just kind of left. And then we flash forward to all the other dogs are on Dog Island, and at some point, uh, Atari shows up on the island looking for his dog Spots. And through the course of that, he meets what turns out to be Spots' brother, and uh, his like that's not known at first, but in time we figure it out, and it's really sweet when we figure it out, and really cute. And uh, so it's a it's a boy and his lost dog story, but it's also a story about companionship, 
It's also a story about brothers. It's also a story about family. And uh, the boy eventually goes on to confront the emperor, uh, who is his adoptive father, and uh, 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 kind of fucks up the emperor's whole plan and whatnot, and uh, uh, gets a cure out for the dog fever, and all the dogs can return to the island, or to the, to not the island, to Japan. Uh, it's a really, it's it's a really sweet story. Uh, that's that's the whole plot of it kind of boiled down. It's a very, very cute, very, very sweet story. I fell in love with it almost immediately. Uh, one of the things that first made me fall in love with it is that uh, one of the symptoms of the dog flu is uh, every now and again a dog uh, will sneeze. And it's always cute when a dog sneezes. And in the stop-motion animation world that Wes Anderson created in Dog Island, the dog sneezes are just incredibly cute and just exactly right. And just the first dog sneeze, I went, oh, this is the cutest movie I've ever seen in my life. It is also heartbreaking and heart-wrenching because there is a dog holocaust going on that they're trying to stop. And uh, it's very serious and very dark in places. This is not a movie for kids. It's more grown up than than a kid's movie. Your kids need to be at least teenagers, probably. Uh, but it's nevertheless very cute, even though it's it's kind of intense in places. It remains very, very cute. And despite Wes Anderson's penchant for killing small animals, it uh, actually does a pretty good job of being very sweet and very dog-friendly. And uh, in the DVD packaging, there's even a thing for, like, uh, not the Humane Society, but hang on, let me open it. For uh, bestfriends.org, Best Friends Animal Society, there's an ad for them in there. Uh, I think this was Wes Anderson kind of trying to make amends for the fact that throughout his movies he's killed a bunch of dogs and cats and stuff unceremoniously, and he kind of, maybe he just felt like, all right, I need to do one where everything's kind of nice to the dogs. Um, And he released this really, really cute movie that at one point has, uh, hang on, I'm going to close the DVD box. You ready? There it was. At one point, uh, I mean, everybody is in this movie. Brian Cranston plays one of the dogs. Jeff Goldblum's in it. Bill Murray's in it. Uh, Francis McDormand is in it. Greta Gerwig does a voice. Who else? Tilda Swinton, I'm sure, has got to be in there. Scarlett Johansson is in it. Everybody loves Scar Jo. Scarlett Johansson. Edward Norton is in it. Leif Schreiber is in it. Bob Balaban shows up again. For the guys like me who know who Bob Balaban is, uh, he briefly dated Elaine on Seinfeld, if that helps you at all. Bob Balaban. Uh, It's a really cool cast list. One of the more interesting casting choices is that Yoko Ono shows up and provides the voice of a character who is named Yoko Ono, but is not Yoko Ono. Uh, And that, (laughs) that made me laugh, and I just went, well, that's... That's the most Yoko Ono thing they could have possibly done, <laughs> and it was just perfect. Which, by the way, I love Yoko Ono. I've come around on Yoko Ono. I know everybody 
thinks ill of Yoko Ono because of the Beatles thing. Yoko Ono was absolutely the right person for John. She made him better. She helped his music become better. And she has done a great job with his legacy. The world owes a debt to Yoko Ono. And uh, I love Yoko Ono, and I love that she showed up in this movie. God bless her. Uh, I, I had so much fun just with the fact that she showed up playing someone named Yoko Ono who was not the Yoko Ono that we think of. That was just a lot of fun for me. Um, the movie itself has met with mixed reviews from people who have accused it of cultural appropriation. They've accused it of stereotyping. Uh, they've said that there's, uh, that in the translation that, uh, the fact that people are speaking Japanese is either pandering or that the Japanese that they're speaking, that they're speaking is way too simple. Um, people have accused it of having a white savior character in it. Uh... I, I, I wanna I wanna address that. I wanna be careful in how I do because if any of the voices saying any of that are Asian voices, then you need to listen to them. Uh, frankly, the voices that I've seen saying those things are not Asian voices. They are very, very white voices that uh, uh, wanna sound like they care about Asian issues. Um, but if there are Asian voices raising those same concerns, we absolutely need to listen to those concerns. Those concerns are absolutely valid. I will be glad to retract anything I am about to say. I will be glad to learn from anything that I am about to say. Asian voices are more important than mine on this issue. Uh, you should absolutely listen to them. I have not done a ton of research to find them in the case of this movie, uh, we are, however, at a point partially because of the misnaming of the coronavirus among a certain political party that uh, Asian Americans and Asian immigrants to America have been targeted in a way that they have not been in generations. And uh, we need to be very mindful of that and we need to be very sensitive to Asian issues and Asian representation. And if there are any Asian voices that disagree with me on anything that I am about to say about Isle of Dogs, please, please, please listen to the Asian voices instead of mine and correct me where I need to be corrected. Always hold me accountable, and I will always change when I am convinced that I need to. I promise you that. That said, I don't see a lot of cultural appropriation happening in this movie. Because the story isn't about Japan. Japan is the setting of the story. In the same way that Goodwill Hunting is not about Philadelphia, but that is the setting of Goodwill Hunting. In the same way that none of Kevin Smith's movies are about New Jersey, but the setting is New Jersey. There are touchstones to Japan in it. It, again, a very bold move to do all of the Japanese uh, voices untranslated. That was that caught my attention and I thought was fascinating and made me want to look deeper into that aspect of the movie, uh, which is how I found that there were people criticizing it in this way. Um, I don't see stereotyping. I see, again, some touchstones that are very quickly for what is an American or Western audience just to identify, you you recognize this as Japanese, so here it is, so that you can put this in the context of we are in Japan. 
just quick touchstones like that. Like if someone were to do a movie that was based in St. Louis, there would probably be a scene in front of the arch so that you mentally knew, ah, this is in St. Louis. That's how I read all of the references to Japan, just as a reminder that, okay, we're in Japan. This movie isn't a, a history or a telling of the story of Japan. We are just in Japan, and this story is happening there. Um, I don't see the stereotyping that the movie's been a accused of. Uh, I think the lack of translation was well done. There are people who are saying that the translation is far too simple, that the, 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 that the Japanese language being used is far too simple. Uh, I think the reason for that is you were talking about Wes Anderson, who is a very white-bread-looking American guy making movies for what is going to be a predominantly white-bread American audience. Of course, they're going to be released worldwide, but you've got an American guy writing a, a movie that is primarily going to have its target audience be Americans and is being made with American actors and so on and so on and so on. He's probably not putting a ton of thought into the overseas market. He's mainly thinking, how is this going to play in the Midwest? So, yes, the language is kept very simple with context cues that we can use to understand what is happening even though we don't speak the language. Because that is how you speak to people when they don't speak the language. I occasionally have to speak to people in my own life who speak Spanish, and I do not speak Spanish. And maybe they don't speak very good English, so they'll need me to keep it simple, and I will keep my sentences simple, and I will use context clues that will help them understand where... I'm failing to speak to them in their language because someone who doesn't speak my language isn't stupider than I am. They have mastery of thousands of words that I don't, and I have mastery of thousands of words that they don't, and I'm trying to use the words that I have to communicate to them, and sometimes that means I've got to speak simply. So the, cr the criticism that the Japanese used is too simple You've got to keep the audience in mind. The audience is idiot Americans who don't speak Japanese. It has to be simple so that we can understand it. That's a choice that has to be made. It's either do that, or it's have everybody in Japan for some reason speaking English for no, no logical reason. Other than, clearly this movie's for America, and we don't care that we're misrepresenting uh, Japan by having them speak English all the time. That's my take on the, on the language situation. I absolutely don't agree with those who say that there's a white savior character in the movie, and the character of Tracy, who is uh, removable from the movie, frankly. If you took Tracy out of the movie, the character of Tracy, if you took her out of the movie... She plays a role in the plot, yeah. She, uh, uh, she's an American, for those who haven't seen it, she's an American living in Japan who is kind of doing an anti-emperor movement to try to get people to reject what the emperor is doing with the dogs, and uh, she's sort of building a groundswell of support for the dogs and, and, and trying to uh, point out that the government is corrupt. That's what her role is. She meets with mixed results on that. And frankly, if you completely removed her, her story, if you completely removed her character from the movie, the plot would play out exactly the same way. Atari would still find spots. He would still 
get back to the Emperor's press conference and fuck up his whole day. That would still happen regardless of Tracy being there. She is in no way a savior of the movie. She does some good things, but she serves as America's conduit into the movie. She's for idiots like me who don't speak Japanese and who don't have very much knowledge of Japan to see a character and have something that we a little bit identify with and that can explain the situation to us using English words. That's her function in the movie. She is in no way integral to the saving plot of the movie. I disagree with calling her a white savior character. That's the one of anything on here that I will dig in my heels on. Just creatively, I don't view her character that way at all. Uh... Ultimately, with all of this, I I think you really have to take the author's intent into mind. In all of these situations, I think you do. Because you're not looking at someone who is expressing hatred for Japan. You're not looking at someone who is trying to paint Japan in a negative light. You're looking at someone who is using Japan as a backdrop that was really unnecessary. He could have used absolutely anywhere as a backdrop. He chose to use Japan, potentially even for reasons of inclusion. I don't know that, but there isn't a whole lot of Japanese culture being reflected in a, in a mainstream way in American society. I know people are going to yell different video games at me. Yes, I've played the, the Yakuza series. You want to hold that up? Really? As an accurate representation of, of Japanese culture? Really? Do you want to do you want to be Yakuza? Um, before you start making these arguments, look at the thing that you're going to wave around at me. There aren't a whole lot of uh, good mainstream Japanese representations. There certainly weren't a couple of years ago when he put this thing out. Um, I kind of feel like maybe he did it because he thought, well, it's, I, I, I haven't gone to Japan yet in anything I've done. And maybe he likes Japan and he wanted to do something to kind of say, hey, Japan's cool. Let's uh, let's do a backdrop of Japan, you know, and have some fun walking around in Japan. Maybe that was his motivation. But regardless of what his motivation was, his motivation wasn't, uh, clearly wasn't hate and clearly wasn't malice. And that's different from someone making a movie of uh, based in Japan where all they're doing is making jokes about Japan and all they're doing is using Japanese slurs and things like that. That's not the movie you got. You got a guy who used some Japanese touchstones so that he could convince his American audience that they were watching a movie set in Japan. And I think the intent has to be in mind there. Anytime you're talking about race or prejudice of any kind, you have to look a little bit at Okay, but what did he mean? Did he mean well and he just used the wrong words or the wrong symbolism? Did he mean better than what came out? And if the answer to that question is yes, then that person is a person who is teachable. Because that is a person who is on your side who wants to do better and wants to reflect things better. He doesn't deserve your scorn. He deserves your help. So if Wes Anderson is wrong in how he depicted Japan in Isle of Dogs... Let's point him in the right direction, but let's do it with kindness. If I'm wrong in anything that I said, I will absolutely change my position if I'm wrong. But please do it with kindness. Please correct me with kindness. Hold me accountable kindly, and I will listen. 
That said, Isle of Dogs, I really, really enjoyed it. Again, it was an A for me. In a movie that I didn't know what I was going to think about it, because I, I had already watched uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox by that time. I watched the two animated ones together, and I really liked Mr. Fox. And I thought, well, I liked that. Maybe I'll like Isle of Dogs a lot. But I, I, I don't know. It seems like the kind of movie that could go either way for me. And it was knocked out of the park. I really enjoyed it. So that's where we are. That's where we stand. That's nine movies we talked about in one episode, all by the same guy. Uh, I'm going to run through them again real quick. Just go back over the letter grades that I gave everything. Bottle Rocket, I gave a C-. Rushmore, I gave a B. Royal Tenenbaums, I gave a B+. Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, I gave an A+. Uh, Darjeeling Limited, I gave a C. Fantastic Mr. Fox, I gave a B+. Maybe even an A-. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom, B+. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, A+. And Isle of Dogs, A. I really, really enjoyed my walk through Wes Anderson's world. I'm looking forward to the next movie. I'm looking forward to whatever he does from this point onward. I'm I'm gonna see it. I really like what he does. I had a great time doing this. I hope you had a great time listening to this. If you have any points you would like to discuss with me, the email address is db at derekbrink.com uh, or you can uh, find me on the blog at emptychecking.blogspot.com or emptychecking.podbean.com. Those are the only places I will ever see your comments. If uh, if you want to come on the show and argue with me about anything I said, please, let's set that up. We'll do it by phone because COVID is still a thing, but let's set that up. It'd be a lot of fun to talk about this with someone else because I had a lot of fun talking about this by myself. So I can only imagine what talking to another person about it would be like. Um, I had a lot of fun doing this. And I, I, I uh, it's really... One of the things I wrote on Twitter is when you watch all of the Wes Anderson movies at the same time, really fucks with your musical taste because I now have a playlist of songs on my uh, phone to play in my car and elsewhere that is titled Wes Anderson songs and it's just songs that were in his movies because uh, he again he and I seem to share a playlist so I've just got a playlist that songs that are in his movies that I liked and uh, uh, that's uh, that's cool. And I bought that that Life Aquatic Studio Sessions thing that I again don't have in front of me, and I, I feel bad about that. I'll I'll absolutely put the guy's name on the blog over at emptychecking.blogspot.com because uh, it's a really cool listen. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I I I feel like I feel like I didn't know what I was missing out on for <laughs> twenty years. And that's such an interesting feeling to look back on, wow, I could have spent all this time appreciating these movies and I just didn't know better. And now I know better. And uh, that's, I don't know which one is more rewarding, you know? If you're a longtime Wes Anderson fan, maybe you can give me your perspective on it sometime. Me, as a newbie, I had such a great time and I've had a really great time talking about it now. But I'm going to stop talking about it now because we're an hour and a half into this thing. We're at the length of a full-length movie. And uh, you may be a little bit tired of hearing me rant about it. And if you're not, then we should be friends in real life, probably. Because this is all I do with my time. <laughs> this is what talking to me is like. It's just long-winded essays on stuff I like. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I'm glad I got to do an episode on it, but I'm even more glad that I got to have the experience and I got to have it 
in that sort of tight, compressed time and see everything like that. That was a real blast for me, and I hope that this uh, I hope this this episode has been a blast for you. We'll uh, do a little bit of music coming out of this, and we'll come back in with uh, just some closing thoughts and the goodbye stuff that we do. Uh, This was fun. I really had a blast doing this. Well, Checkmates, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you aren't into Wes Anderson stuff, maybe it'll help you get into Wes Anderson stuff. If you are into Wes Anderson stuff, I would very much like to talk about it with you. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing this one. I really appreciate it. Uh, I need to take some ibuprofen for my sore shoulder from all the stuff I've been doing around the house lately and uh, maybe go to bed here soon because it's getting late at night here on the night that I'm recording this, which I will never tell you what night it is. Um, it's not the same day that it's going up, I'll tell you that much. Uh, I hope you're all doing okay. I hope you're all staying safe with COVID still out there. There are members of my family who are breakthrough cases that, uh, uh, that's scary, but thankfully most of those people have been vaccinated and are having basically just a a bad cold. Um, but I'll, but a noticeably bad one, you know? Um, everybody's going to be okay because of the vaccine in my family. And uh, it's always been known that even if you're vaccinated, you could still get it. And when you're in a family situation where you have to be clustered together in a house with, in this case, five people, uh, yeah, you're you're going to get sick. Um Everybody's going to be okay, and I firmly believe that they're going to be okay because of the virus, and in at least one case because it was a very young person who got it and just did okay with it. Uh, but that's not ideal. We need to be vaccinated. Uh, the vaccine is now FDA approved, so there is absolutely no reason for you not to get it. Uh, stop making excuses. Stop being selfish. Go out and get vaccinated if you have not. That is the only fucking way we are going to beat this thing. Um, I'm more nervous about it now than I was a month ago, two months ago even. Uh, It's getting worse out there. School is starting, so it's just going to get worse and worse. A doctor I know has flat out said to me that if you have a small child in your life, you're going to get COVID. Um, That's the world we're in because... Half the country is selfish. And that's a shame, and we have the power to change that. So, folks, please uh, please do your part. I've been trying to do mine. I got a little lazy for a while, but I'm back on doing my part. Uh, I'm especially trying to distance as much as I can, even though I do have to go into the office uh, a couple days a week and stuff like that. I'm, I'm wearing masks, I'm distancing, I'm doing everything I can to try to slow my my exposure and and slow the potential of me passing it on to someone else of course i've also been vaccinated um 
other than that, I don't have a whole lot of problems in my life. The biggest problem that I have is I look around my house and realize, boy, I could use more storage shelves for my CDs. And uh, if that's the worst things are going, I think uh, I think we're doing okay. Uh, but yeah, folks, if you're uh, if you're able to get vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Uh, please social distance as much as you can, because if you're not around others, then you can't pick it up and you can't pass it on. Social distancing is hugely important. Stop going to fucking concerts and baseball games. Uh, social distance as much as you can. If you cannot social distance, not if you choose not to, if you cannot social distance, please wear a mask and be responsible. Keep six feet between you and the person you're talking to. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. As part of doing the right thing, please remember that black lives matter. Please remember that trans rights are human rights. Please remember that women's rights are human rights. Be good to each other. Be good to yourselves. Forgive each other and forgive yourselves. And while you're doing all that, check us out next time. One more for the road, Wes Anderson verse.